This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. Guys, Victoria's competing with Queensland now in Australia to be our Florida. It is shutting shit down. The second wave of COVID-19 is coming back around if you're in the United States. It's just keep on keeping on. It's just one entire tsunami of this thing hitting your country. So... I hope you're all staying safe and your family is staying safe and you're practicing all the right precautions and taking care of each other. But here in Sydney, things are starting to open up cautiously, cautiously. People are teetering and fearing that the situation in Victoria is going to cross the border and come into Sydney. So what do you need to do? You need to get some shit catered. You need to get some shit catered by bellacatering.com.au. The family team over there are just incredible. And why? Cook for your own family when they can do it. Thanks to Bella Catering. Thanks for listening. Let's get into the show. And we had forged, Kay and I, had forged such a, a good thing with the Pentagon Papers that we really did. Uh, she trusted me and I trusted her. And you totally. trusted Woodward and Bernstein. Oh boy, I trusted, I trusted reporters. I, they, they made me. I didn't, I didn't write that stuff. I, 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 I got around town and helped them with little yeah. things there. But did, did you ask uh, Woodward, you've got to tell me who Deep Throat is? Or did you just simply say, you got to get give me something so that I know where I'm going I, here? Oh yeah. I didn't ask him who he was until uh, a year or two afterwards. Yeah. Uh, I asked him... Uh, Give me uh, his bona fides. I had his bona fides. Yeah. You, you, you knew. Job description. Job description. Yes. And I had further... The best uh, thing I had was the stories. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is the senior editor of one of the best movie publications online, Brightwall Dark Room. He's a filmmaker. He's also writing a book titled The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, which I am salivating at the prospect of. But I think his greatest achievement, and it made me chuckle so badly, was that when he types LAN on his phone, the first thing his phone thinks to autocorrect is an all caps Lanthimos, which is just the greatest thing I've almost ever seen as a cinephile and uh, as a movie geek, and I just think it's wonderful, and it's very indicative of my great guest. Uh, he's a friend of One Heat Minute Productions and has been so really generous with um, kind words that he's had to say about our crazy ventures, and I love talking to him. Ethan Warren, welcome to All the President's Minutes. Well, thank you so much. This is this is so much fun. Um, I, I don't know that I had ever seen this movie all the way through until... You messaged me, which I thought I had. And so this was a, a great opportunity to actually see how it ends. So I appreciate that. <laughs> You're like, hey, I, I'm pretty sure I've seen this all the way. It is funny when there's a movie that you are 100% sure you've seen. You're like, I've seen this, haven't I? And then the ending just, you're like, no, that doesn't happen. That's not it. Yeah. It's well, a- I mean, the, the thing for me is I think like a lot of Americans, like, you know, Donald Trump got elected and like, the day afterwards, I was like, I need to learn everything there is to know about Watergate. Like right now, I'm going to figure this out and we're going to fix this. And then I started watching this movie and I was like, oh, there is like so much going on and there are so many names and I am not going to figure this out right this minute. 
And I, I tapped out, I think about halfway and was like, I'll come back to this when I understand more about Watergate. And the thing about Watergate is there's a lot to understand Yeah, <laughs> and you're still probably never going to get to the bottom of it. So it's, um, you know, you've got all the president's men, the book, which obviously is crammed with the different names. You've got the film, which is very, very lean and tries to take away anything that is ancillary to the, the actual, you know, dueling protagonist, if you or dual protagonist, if you like, and you get something great like Leon Nafark's Slow Burn, which is just occupied with the circus that is around it. So both in podcast form and then, and then TV show form. And so you get this really weird thing where it's like, that's still just part of it. Like it's this, it's the circus, it's these individual players that become these fascinating entities in and of themselves. It is like a strange, strange time. But I think like, it's in much in the same way, like you would never have realized it, but like much in the same way that there are just now these fascinating weirdos that have like glommed on to this Trump presidency who all then like get cast aside and become their own sort of media circus entities in and of themselves. Like the latest being John Bolton as we're talking. And so you you just go, I never would have thought this was possible. And you go, Oh wait, it's possible and it's happening. And this is what is occupying my feed every day. Well, and then the, the question that is is then so fascinating and that you know william goldman did so effectively is then you figure out like what are the brackets on this like yes this is this huge sprawling mess of history and a sprawling mess of history is brought down into what's still a pretty giant book and then like how do you turn that into a screen narrative which is i think one of the most fascinating things about this movie is that he he managed to find not just a shape to it, but like this incredible counterintuitive shape to it, which, you know, we, we can talk about, but you know, I, I ended up, I think I like paused this and then went and watched like a five hour, like PBS documentary. <laughs> and I was like, this will help. It didn't, um, you know, and, and it is, it, you know, what we're doing right now, it's, it's the, the cheesy John Oliver joke. It's, it's stupid Watergate. It's, all the same sort of horrible nonsense, but with, you know, the, the total lack of ability to hold yourself together during it, which is really saying something as, uh, as Nixon was not exactly keeping it together, uh, during Watergate, <laughs> but he didn't have access to Twitter, Ethan. He, he didn't. And <laughs> he did. you know, maybe that's too bad. <laughs> I know I've often, you know, just for, just for shits and giggles. Can it's it, much in the same way, uh, you know, film crit Hulk kind of did it for a while, but I would just like, and you know, you see Mott, you know, Seinfeld in the present day, I think is another account. It's just like, I think that there's someone out there and it's definitely not me, but there's someone who's like a real Nixon head that could just have a ball tweeting things he think Nixon would say right now, like um, pretending Nixon was in power and just having his say, it would just be a, hilarious account but i think about that fondly sometimes i'm like imagine imagine this guy who's saying all these crazy things and recording it and then having the hubris to have it scribed and then release the recordings and then imagine that people aren't just going to listen to the recordings they're just going to read this thing um in isolation a a buttered up version of it and then they're going to see all these incongruities and yeah it's just it's beautiful we are at a really great scene and 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 just sort of a hangover scene from a great Bradley pep talk that lands pretty much right an hour on the button in this film, which is, you know, we haven't had any luck yet. Get some. 
is basically that where we've just landed and we get these two guys sort of in a despondent way, like skulking off to an elevator to actually find this goddamn story and put some legs under it and get some sources and get some tangible information so that I can, they can either continue it or get rid of it. And it's one of those things where it's, you know, it's, it's a great editorial moment. You as an editor, it's like a come to Jesus moment, if you like, that I just love and relish so much. And I, you know, if we talk about rewatchable scenes, this is one of my, every scene that has robots as Bradley is rewatchable, but particularly this is like, find the story, like keep doing the work it's not enough, like where you're at, it's not enough. And if you think it's enough, you're not thinking big enough. Like you need to do more. And I just love, I just love that entire, the entire sequence, that entire ethos, but also that we've still got your back, but you need to do more. I love that. Well, and what's so cool about that scene is it's, it's the sort of daisy chain effect where you see Bradley in the meeting getting kind of dressed down. Yes. And then he carries that energy in and Woodward and Bernstein come in all, you know, so fired up and then they get the effect of the sort of frustration he's just had. And it, it's just this sort of wave of sort of anxiety rippling through the, the post at this moment. It's so And rough. also <laughs> it's it, the, the other thing about that scene is here's how little I knew about Watergate. I understood it to be that the name deep throat, uh, that the porn title had come as a response to, what I'm sure was a very serious reason that this person had been called deep throat because of like his deep voice and watching this, I was like, Oh, there it's, it's a like corny newsroom joke <laughs> on the pre-existing porn title that we now are like still saying for however many decades. But it's like, it's taken it away from the meaning. Like the meaning is less the porn title and more the conspiratorial source. Like it, it, it's it such an evocative term. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you're on deep background, I call him deep throat, and Bradley's looking at Howard like, what, what, and then and then he gets back to the conversation. It's a great aside, but I think that's a that's a good point. It's like when you see the echoes of the anxiety. It's like at the, at the time Bradley's like, this is growing, this is growing, and just getting sort of hit with a bit of a truth bomb that there are five people on Watergate in town. It it's. It, it must be the anxiety for all people who are breaking big stories or who are investigating these kinds of things to be, is, are we, are we actually onto something? Are we actually onto something in this moment or is it nothing? And, you know, there's a safety in the mass reporting of something because there is a, there's sort of a chorus. There's a, there's a, a, a if you like, there's like a serve of agreed facts and then there's a few like tacks that people take with those those agreed facts and, and they go on their way. But I, yeah, I definitely think that it's a, it's a very, it's very interesting um, uh, that, that in this moment they're like, you know, especially after they've done the Pentagon papers, right? It's like, we've been burned before, you know, even just for media attention, somewhat like been burned before about, being on the front of something, even if it was with the New York Times, we we're on the front of something. But now we're we're out on a limb. We're 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 basically we don't even know if the New York Times has what we've got. We're the only ones who have this information. And then just the it, it, you know now we're jumping back progressively, but just in in the scene uh, the, that Bradley has just come from, the way the uh, the guy at the head of the table just so casually and brutally just says, "And I don't believe it anyway." Yeah, which is just is just so painful to see. <laughs> and. It's, but that's, 
I think that that cynicism is bred on that table, and that's kind of like a symptom of being a journalist. And it's, and it's right. It's it's a it's. I don't believe it anyway. But what is cool about that John McMartin line is like I don't believe it anyway, and that kind of smacks Bradley and Howard in the face a bit. But he's like because this whole Democratic campaign has just imploded, like. Nixon could have done nothing and these guys are still imploding or what they don't realize yet because we're pre-rat fucking. Um, we're, <laughs> we don't know the full depths of this thing yet, but it's like this campaign is imploding. Why would he even bother espionage? They're not ahead of him. He's so far ahead. Even if nothing happens, he's got he's got the lead here. He's He's the more stable candidate. He's likely going to win no matter what. And now with this implosion after implosion, it's becoming farcical on the Democratic side. Sound familiar? It's becoming farcical. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately. It's becoming farcical, so why would he have to try? But, you know, I think that that's, that's, that's a nice bit of a refresher. Well, and that is something that I... I um, I read this Time Magazine article uh, yesterday from around the time that this movie was, you know, either was about to come out or had just come out. And, and Bradley sort of speaks to something that um, I know Bill gets talked about on, on the first episode of the show, which is Nixon had this great capacity to kind of do exactly the opposite of what he would have wanted and just these unforced errors, which is, as Bradley points out, the great irony is that Nixon hated these guys and made them into heroes. Yes. Just really, you know, inadvertently and, and as an absolute unforced error. <laughs> I love that concept. Unforced, Nixon's unforced errors are just like, <laughs> I love a sport, I love the, a sports stat for that. Um, you got, speaking of Bradley, there's like a six degrees of separation, personal historical connection with Ben Bradley that I think is something that I'm desperate to talk to you about. Yeah, so it's, it is even fewer than six degrees. It's like two degrees. Um, and I felt really great about this. And then I listened to your, your episode with Ken Turin, and uh, his <laughs> connection is, is stronger. I'll admit that. Um, if anybody hasn't listened to that one, go back. It's, that is incredible stuff with Ken talking about the, his, his actual experiences at the Post in this time. That, working, that at the, working at the Post yeah. during Watergate. I know Carl Bernstein. You're like, oh, uh, you know, I know. <laughs> it was like an, I was like I was getting electric shocks through my body as I was listening to the great and wise maestro Kenny Turin tell me that story. It was incredible. So I, I don't have that, but I have something pretty good, which is that my dad um, is was um, pretty familiar with Ben Bradley personally. Um, so my dad is is the headmaster of a prep school um, just west of Boston called St. Mark's School. Um, and Ben Bradley is, is an alum and, um, Bradley has, has deep roots in, in Boston. He's, uh, what we here would call a Boston Brahmin, uh, which is, is the term for sort of like, you know, anybody with like sort of Mayflower family ties, yes. um, who sort of is like the, the upper crusty kind of old fashioned, you know, Boston socialite. Um, and so my dad, uh, was also a student at St. Mark's, he's an alum, um, and was, was at St. Mark's during Watergate. Um, and you know, some of his real sort of flashbulb memories of, of his time, um, involve, uh, you know, being students and, and seeing this all unfolding. I, I got to, um, 
learn more about this from him because after I asked, I mentioned we were going to be doing this show and he sent me a speech that he had given to um, the students, uh, I guess during the Trump impeachment hearings um, a few months ago where he was sort of saying, I was where you are now and this is where I learned um, sort of how to process things like this. And, uh, you know, he talks about the sort of horrible stomach drop moment of, you know, sitting in, in the faculty apartment and watching Nixon just implode and say, I am not a crook and how sort of viscerally disturbing that was to him as a teenager, the sort of indignity of it. But then uh, one of the other stories he has is, is, you know, my dad, as a student who was in a leadership position who would go on to the headmaster's job many decades, decades later was um, friendly with the faculty. And he remembers sitting in the headmaster's office um, around this time with Ben Bradley, who had come back to visit. He was a devoted alum of the school and, and Bradley would be sitting there sort of with his feet up, sort of reflecting on all this and like, you know, boy, work's been crazy lately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, still with his he, feet you know, up, he, still with his feet up. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, with his devastating red pen. Right. Um, but he talks about how, like, you know, it's, it's really remarkable that this guy was just so, um, felt no need to kind of puff himself up, just talked about it as, you know, things are crazy at the office. And, and he was clearly so keenly aware of his position in history. Um, and that is something that also comes through in this, this Time Magazine piece that I read where Bradley uh, talks to Redford. He, he, <laughs> he has uh, a line where he says to Redford, basically, like, he got the sense that Redford wasn't kind of taking this seriously enough. He says, like, uh, you know, what is it? Don't forget that you're going to go off to make another movie where you ride a horse and jump in the sack with a girl, but I'm an asshole forever. <laughs> Uh, and and Redford says this is a guy who was like unbelievably aware of kind of what his position was and exactly how to maintain it. And I think that speaks to my, my dad's recollection of him as this really sort of humble guy. Um, and then at, in the years after my dad became headmaster, um, he would go to, he goes down to Washington a lot um, to sort of meet with the alums down there and, and often, you know, solicit money, which is, half the job of, half the of job a head of school or, at a prep school for sure. Exactly. Uh, and so he talks about um, having breakfast with Bradley and just, again, sort of anytime my dad would try to move it, the conversation to matters of historic significance, it would be no, 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 let's talk about our families. And that, that was like a clutch my heart moment. Like Ben Bradley's had conversations about me. <laughs> I'm his family. <laughs> but then what I loved was uh, my dad says that, he uh, then got a tour of the post from Bradley and uh, the only time he ever did see Ben Bradley get kind of full of himself was showing the picture of him arm in arm with Jason Robards, <laughs> which I just, it's, it's such a beautiful <laughs> image. Like you, you have changed the course of human history and that's all my day's work. But Jason Robards played me in a movie. Did you get to see that? That's pretty cool. <laughs> And as my dad said, he just wishes he could have ever touched base with him about the, the fact that Tom Hanks played him in a movie, which uh, well, yeah. definitely would have tickled him. And then Alfred Molina, which is very weird casting, but, you know, have you, have you talked about that yet with no, people? I haven't this, talked to Molina casting. I've, I've only seen clips, though. That's the thing. I haven't seen. 
it is so bizarre. It's, you know, Hanks and Robards are basically playing like variations on the same role. And then you bring in Alfred Molina, who just could not be more like not those two guys. <laughs> They're better or worse, an incredible actor, obviously. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it sort of all goes back to, you know, as my dad giving this speech to a bunch of teenagers, it is like, you know, that, that this is a guy who embodied uh, what is the motto of St. Mark's School, which is Age Quote August, uh, which means literally do what you do. Yes. And they sort of interpret to mean like, you know, it, it is a, an aphorism, I guess, that just means sort of like whatever you're going to do, do it to the best of your abilities. Yes. Um, you know, embody the values of, of whatever you want to sort of be the, the great message of, of your work. So, you know, if you're going to do one heat minute production, you know, do it with your whole heart. If you're going to bring down the white house, do it with your whole heart. And, you know, I just think there's something kind of lovely about that. And you can, you can cast Jason Robards and, you know, get some incredible gravitas and, and knowing that it came from a place of, of sincerity. I just, you know, that was very meaningful to me, uh, you know, right after watching this movie to pull up that speech and go, all right, it was, it was for real. It's so, it's, um, I can't imagine, you know, I can't imagine the power of that as a young, as a young person hearing your headmaster go, I sat where you sat during this time. And, and, and just, it's sort of refreshing the lens on like, and my stomach dropped and it's weird and this is a learning opportunity. And, um, it's just nice because, you know, our, I guess, reflecting, he might've been diagnosing an absence of that at the time for his own headmasters, like, you know, going, Hey, we learned a lot about this and it was extremely strange and disconcerting and uncomfortable and challenged us, but that's okay. Like all of those things are okay. And that's what this whole institution is here for. Absolutely incredible. And I just, it's so funny what personally tickles you though. Like, like this is a movie with Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford and Ben Bradley just dwarfs them. Like this, like ca extremely charismatic character actor who just sort of toiled at it forever. Like did this role. Like I, I, I often feel it with like Tom Hanks is like, that's a brave, that's a brave move on his part to play this guy after Robards. Cause it's like Robards is so iconic. Like, he has, it's like Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs with, you know, uh, with Hopkins. It's like, he's not in the movie for a lot of time, but pound for pound, every single second he's in the movie, he's just like, everyone else is just, it's like, it's, it's like Jordan. <laughs> it's like, it's like Jordan comes and st stumbles, you know, after all of us have watched the last dance, it's like, you know, someone going, I could beat Michael Jordan. And it's like, while he was retired, he'd come into the training practice and then like go with you one-on-one -on -one and just dunk on you for like 15 minutes and then walk out. <laughs> that's what, that, that's what every Bradley moment in this movie is just dunking on everyone around him. Well, it's, the, the Hannibal Lecter, you know, Anthony Hopkins comparison is perfect because it is, there's, there's just sort of enough of him. And it's, it sort of throws me off into thinking about the Tom Hanks thing, because I think something that can be so fascinating is when there's sort of a, a metatextual angle yes. to casting um, and to a performance. And so Bradley, he's, you know, Robards is in this movie just enough that when he walks in, there is sort of a power and a gravitas to that. And that is who he is to, to these two guys and, and, you know, to his staff. And, and Hanks is somebody who is really interesting because you're never not seeing Tom Hanks yes. when he walks in. And, and at, at this point, when you're casting him, you are casting sort of somebody who the audience will see sort of in double. 
And that's why I think he's, he's incredible casting for Mr. Rogers, which I, I didn't think he was when he was first cast. But then I realized as I was watching the movie, it's because you as the viewer get that surge of warmth every time he walks on screen. Somebody who else who isn't in that movie all that much, you need that moment where he walks on screen of like, ah, oh, my favorite guy is here. This That's is great. And and you, you mostly get that with Hanks, which is a little bit anathema to the Bradley as we see in this movie. And Hanks has this quality of, of being, you know, he, he gives you that surge of my favorite guy is here, which is, it's anathema to, to Bradley as we see him in this movie, where when he walks into the room, you need to feel almost a sort of a chill. Um, and, and I haven't seen the post in a couple of years, so maybe that works perfectly for the, the Bradley as he's being characterized in that movie. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, now I'm just going off into a total spiral of <laughs> Robards versus Hanks and the effect of whatever, whatever, which is. Yeah, look, it's definitely an earlier Bradley. So I think, you know, we don't have to go down to the, the you know, the, the complete rabbit hole with it and go full predestination um, on it. I, I think it's, I think it's just, he, he's doing something different, but they're trying to elicit something, that familiarity and warmth and maybe that charm because Bradley is all that charm. But by the time we arrive to presidents, he's got that intimidation factor as well. And so even the structure, as you, as you know, is like he's right on the outskirts of this, this newsroom. They're seeing him. He's in reference. He's constantly a presence on the floor. That's both a Bradley, like a tenant of Bradley being in the newsroom, like he was there is all the time, he's in the office, but it's also a tenant of Robart's performance. Like on days he wasn't even meant to be in, he's just sitting in his office reading, you know, whether he's reading scripts or a book, he's just there. He goes, I want to be there on the newsroom all the time so these guys feel like I'm there. Um, and then when he comes out and we start to see him and we get these encounters with him, I think that's what they weigh on so much more because his presence with these other guys, like even ball-busting Jack Warden, right? Like he's the... He, he, he's an intimidating fellow in and of himself, but like he has reverence for Bradley. So then when you see Bradley in reference to these guys, you already feel as a ball buster and this larger than life figure. You're like, Oh, okay. This is a different, this is a different animal. Well, and it's also wild to watch this movie as somebody who is, I, I'm, I am writing this book about Paul Thomas Anderson's work. And so I'm really living immersed in, in Robard's last performance in Magnolia, where he is, this absolute emaciated figure, um, you know, Robards had, had just at the time of Magnolia had just been in a coma and had lost an immense amount of weight and, and is a, a dying man playing a dying man. And to then toggle from that back to this. And it's like, Oh man, like the, you want to talk about metatextual power <laughs> to see that performance in 1999 from this guy who doesn't exactly look young <laughs> in right. the mid seventies, but is this absolute, this lion of a man, the the St. Mark's school uh, mascot is the lion. And that is, that is the impression you get of him here. And then, then to see him in Magnolia in that bed, just, you know, absolutely withering is, it's going to be hard to go back next time I rewatch Magnolia, having just lived with this movie for a few days, it's, you know, that's going to be more painful than ever. And a, and, and a credit, a credit to his presence that even when Cruz is, when Cruz is next to him, he still feels like a lion. You know, like he's, he's lying there essentially lifeless and he still makes Cruz tremble. And this is this big, giant, swollen, you know, erect energy that he's exuding in this whole movie. And there's this guy who's just lying down and he's, you know, he's making him shudder. It's yeah, that's a powerful movie. It's a powerful performance. And I think almost everything that he does 
Um, you know, especially when he gets a little bit of bones. And I, I, I particularly love him in parenthood. Like, I just love him. His, like, I just love his performance in parenthood, like Ron Howard's Parenthood, which is, you know, a funny, eclectic, weird movie, um, uh, you know, when you reflect on it, because it's just kind of strange. Um, Steve Martin's son in that movie looks exactly like my brother as a young man, which freaks me out even more when I go and revisit it. But Robards is, you know, in that movie is just so great because he's, again, this lion you know, patriarch of this family and he's deeply compassionate and has a forward view and isn't, you know, he kind of goes antithetical to everything you're expecting of him from the beginning of the movie, how he's set up. So yeah, he's terrific. It's, it's, I mean, uh, impossible. I mean, who cares? Batman, Batman, Superman, Schmooperman. Like who cares? (laughs) Like, but stepping into Bradley's shoes, it's like, ugh, this isn't, I don't want to do this. I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want to do, I don't want to play a role that robots played. I'm, I'm good. Thanks. Well, and it is a testament to the power of this performance and this role and everything that, that he is he is dragging me to him like a gravitational force. When he is not in the minute, <laughs> I am assigned yeah. to be here to discuss. I am encroaching on whoever was, uh, you know, in, in the previous couple of episodes. And, you know, that's, again, the, the metatextual power of having Jason Robards there just enough that you, you kind of feel like Woodward and Bernstein played by two of the greatest actors <laughs> In screen history, it's like, we'll get to them when we get to them. We are going to get to them. But I think right now is a good time to get to them. Let's go to good, yeah. Let's go to a foyer with Woodward and Bernstein just being dressed down. Another one of the great lines of the movie coming up. My great friend Ethan Warren and I are going to watch together right now. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about it. I made a mistake in there. Well, you said to Bradley, we haven't had any luck yet, and, that, and that's the thing that he jumps on. You can't talk about luck if you can't talk in specifics. You shouldn't say anything. Is there any place you don't smoke? What are you doing? Kay Eddie. Doesn't she go with a guy that works for the committee to reelect? Mm-hmm. All right. Hey. Just a second. Can, uh, 757651. <laughs> God, Lindsay Krauss is beautiful. Sorry, to, I'm sorry, sorry to distract, but just the end of the minute, Lindsay Krauss is absolutely stunning, and the the '70s hair, the little the whip, it's it's very Farrah Fawcett-y. It's great. She looks beautiful, but God, she gets a shout out in the the Time Magazine piece. Just yeah. you know, she's in there for all of a couple of minutes, and they still highlight her as uh, the line is. Uh, appears with touching reluctance to betray a lost love, which, you know, I was, I was very keyed into that because I knew this was part of my minute, but I'm not sure it would have like grabbed me enough to write down in time magazine. <laughs> I'm not sure I would have driven. I, I'm not sure it would have been touching reluctance more like, right. Yeah. You know, more like pangs of pain and frustration. And imagine in 1976, how hard it is to break out of an engagement uh, like, uh, you yeah. know, uh, uh, as a couple and pursue a career. And obviously this is the time, you know, in, in that sort of first, you know, sort of popularized first wave proper feminism, um, wave of like, 
this is a woman actually breaking out, getting to own her life, own her career, move out of here. It's not, it's not reluctance, re- definitely reluctance, but not touching. I wouldn't have gone with that. Such a great, such a great scene of those guys in the elevator. There is nothing I love more than the gap between Bernstein attempting to give Woodward advice here and his registration of that when his hands on his head and he is just like, like literally I've, I've just gone 12 rounds and I'm beaten and I have nothing. I have no emotion left. I'm completely undercut and it it takes him a few, uh, it takes him a beat before he's ready to, to play this game. And this is the, where he shows his inexperience, but also his potential. And it's, um, man, it's a dynamic minute. It's, it's wild. It is, there is so much to dig into in this minute of just two guys standing in an elevator, which as, uh, you know, as I mentioned to you the other day, this is the second, <laughs> my second episode of a, of a one heat minute production. And it's my second one about two guys in an elevator. Cause I had the, the minute in heat where, um, West studio and, and Al Pacino are on their way up to, uh, fire buckshot it <laughs> or scatter shot it at the door. Um, and it, but it, it got me thinking about elevator scenes today. There is a, a sort of low key power to an elevator scene because you've got characters who are on their way somewhere, but are forced to stand still. There's sort of inherent tension to it. And it's just a great moment to like, you're not breaking the action. You are, they, they are hurtling towards their next destination, but you as a director and a writer and, and performers, are forced to make them stand still. And in, in heat, they're bouncing on their toes and they're, um, I still remember talking about West Studios is, is playing with the, the shells because he's like a little kid who's going to go <laughs> shoot a door down. And here, I mean, there's so much about the writing and the, the framing and the performance. Um, I mean, I, I listened to um, your episode with, with Manola Dargas the other day and, she referred to like, you know, whoever gets to talk about that minute is going to have so much fun. And I was like, that's me. <laughs> um, and, and she's, she's totally right. There's what, there's like what, three, four lines of dialogue and, and in that elevator. And it's all verbal diarrhea, mostly from Carl. He's just like, we shouldn't have seen, should have seen yeah. like, it's the one luck. It's the one luck thing. That, and he's just like, it's like the nicotine is helping extract these, like this blather, like she's yeah. the one thing, you know, th- like that was the wrong thing. Like with, like one of the second last lines of the exchange, he's like, and that's what he hangs on to. It's like, no, sorry, Carl, the conversation was over. Like the conversation was over midway through. We didn't have much to back it up. Um, So yeah, it's a, it's, I just love everything about this. I love the lighting. I love the staging. And I think it's, I think it's, um, I think it was Jason Bailey I spoke to, who's a terrific critic in his own right was just like he feels like every moment that willis is out of the newsroom they allowed him to go buck wild like it's like he, you're you know yeah. it's like anytime you oh. can have some abstraction but i love this downlit lift that it feels like very sallow they they feel you know beaten but it's great angular tones on both these guys you can barely see woodward's face it's just his tussling of his hair his hands in his hair he's despondent Hoffman looks great. Wide ties. I just love the, the composition. Like you said, it's just so exquisite. It's really, really beautiful. Well, and what I really was, was zeroing in on the last time I watched this just a couple hours ago, I went back and watched just this minute one more time. And the way that they are standing in the frame, and it's, it's too bad that the listener is presumably not looking at this image right now, but 
the way they're arranged just within within the frame is fascinating because Redford is pushed forward and Hoffman is pushed back, which exaggerates the height difference that's already pretty dramatic. It makes Woodward even even larger than, than Bernstein, but then they duck Redford's head, which brings them closer to the same height. And so there's it's it's almost an uncanny sort of depth of field kind of thing going on that like almost brings you to, to mind of the um the Lord of the Rings effects with the you know yes. um the hobbits and the wizards standing in, in different it, spots to like, exaggerate like their height difference. It's like a Michelle Gondry movie right now. Like you know it's like you're playing with uh, playing with those tricks. Well yeah and it, it's gonna sound like I'm overstating it, but I, I would encourage the listener to go back and look at the image because once you are focusing on it, it's it's a very strange uh way to compose this frame and i you know as as befits the fact that this is a movie you can analyze minute by minute you know none of this is accidental that's certainly a deliberate choice um and you know it's it's they they have their odd couple energy which is so much of the joy of this movie is that you've got redford who is like the human embodiment of a golden retriever um (laughs) playing it's sort of the, the idea of an odd couple energy is that there's, there's always sort of a low status guy and the high status guy. And both of them are both at all times. Cause you know, something else I was thinking about today. Um, you know, they, they wanted Redford for the graduate, right? Yes, they did. Right. And so, Oh no, Redford wanted Redford for the graduate Nichols. Well, and it, Nichols, what's the nickel? The story, as the story goes, is that Redford's like, oh, this is me. Like, I'm this guy. I, I could, I could totally do this. And the story goes is Nichols was like, you know, have you ever been, you know, have you, have you ever had the, you know, a, a girl like break your heart or let you down? And Redford kind of looked at him blankly, and Nichols is like you can't be this guy. Like you've never, there's never been a girl that's broken your heart. Like, and you then get Hoffman and he's the guy, he's the guy that girls break his heart. Totally. So, yeah, I mean, that that was just something to, it just sort of (laughs) came back to me in a rush of memory today. Like, Oh, right. These guys are kind of the two sliding door Ben Braddock's. Um, and so there, there is an analogous energy to them in a lot of ways, um, which is what, you know, as I say, the sort of status thing, which one of them is the high versus the low status character. And, and they, they intersect at exactly that point of like, you know, cocky, hungry young guy um, who's going to go, you know, <laughs> take on the world in, in some way or another. Um, and so then, then uh, you know, to talk about just to keep sticking on the visuals of this scene, the shadows, as you say, um, are so 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 deep and so sort of the the meaning of light and shadow in this movie is is always so significant um and and the fact that this is lit like they are in the the absolute bowels of the earth (laughs) says a lot about sort of what the emotional energy is like what are shadows sort of keyed to in this movie it's it's you know deep throat it's these late night scenes of sort of paranoia and you know not quite despair but despair is what they're keyed to here and so to kind of 
mentally map it onto the other moments of, of sort of shrouded darkness when so much of the movie is so sort of bright, bright light is interesting. I mean, it's, it's this very brief sort of dip and, you know, they, they have in the previous minute, they are running so hot. Um, and then they, they dip into this brief, like utter despair. And then, you know, the minute that the doors are shut again, uh, it's like, wait a minute, I got an idea. <laughs> and <laughs> so the, the darkness really exaggerates, like, this is the dark night of their soul. Oh, never mind. Yeah, um, it's, it, which, we're being consumed. We're lowering down to this despair. We're like, we're never going to get out of this. Like, what? Wait. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's like, wait, we can keep going. And that's, that's actually such a, a satisfying impulse. It's like we all collectively, and no matter what pursuit you do, go through downs. Like you just hit a down and sometimes it feels like it's impossible to go down. And what's great about their collective energy, and, and maybe it's just the alchemy of these two individuals, these two actors, this story, the structure of the script, but it's like they're going down to the depths of hell. They're being consumed by darkness. All of their dark thoughts, are, are we good enough? All the, all the self-doubt and then just that lick of an idea, like bang. Okay. And then they reascend, they reascend back into the brightness, back into the, back into them, you know, their practice of sort of this great good cop, bad cop relationship. Um, and straight back into Lindsay Krauss and they are willing to push the envelope. Like they're willing to push the envelope further. They're willing to try newer things. They're willing to utilize contacts. And it's like that thankless element of being a journalist where you are constantly, potentially constantly like, calling into question uh, relationships and whatnot with different folk that you're working with because you're like, uh, I really need this. And I don't really, I don't really care how bad this is going to be for my relationship. I need it more for the story. The story is more valuable to me than this moment. I'm just, I'm checking Lindsay Krause. It's the, the time magazine article lists her as Ann Krause and misspells her last name, which is very <laughs> funny now that you're, you're repeating it. It's like either time is wrong or Blake is wrong. And if Blake is wrong, I should probably say something. <laughs> um, well, and it's what is so wonderful about this movie, as I'm sure just about every guest has talked about, is is the way that Goldman and Redford and everybody intuitively, as they were developing it, clicked onto the idea of, oh, this movie works best if it ends with them low. Yes. The audience the audience gets to fill in the happy ending themselves. And Redford says in the, in the timepiece that um, what excited him about this movie is that he loves it when people take wild shots and miss. And so it is, it's, it's the sort of down, but never out quality of these guys that, that makes the movie great. And, and how sort of they are heroic in their, non-heroicness <laughs> almost um yes you know somebody in that in that article uh, says you know that the the best thing that you can do for these characters is to show them as hungry desperate reporters not sort of avenging heroes which is then runs counter to, to what bernstein was was looking for um so he did bernstein did his own um his rewrite of the movie as i'm sure you've talked about with other people yes with Nora um, Ephron, no less. Yes, with Nora Ephron. Yeah, yeah. And um, and one of the notes uh, that Redford gave him was was that he was trying to make himself too heroic. Um, Redford says, you know, Carl Errol Flynn is dead. <laughs> you know, basically slow slow your roll. 
um, you know, you're, you're making yourself look too heroic, which is the, the sort of very, you know, obviously he's, he's not a, you know, narrative storyteller in this way. And so of course he thinks, well, I should, be, I should be the hero. I should be the swashbuckler. And it's no, that's, that's not interesting. What's interesting is how often you're down and out. And, and also it's when you're, when you're talking about these two guys, it's, it's interesting how often you're down and out, but it's nowhere near as interesting for anyone to see, you know, you being perfect. Like, I think if this story is completely different, if these guys are unassailable, extremely experienced reporters who have been doing it forever and they break the story and they get it all done. It's, it's a different, there's a different lens. What's, what's, part of the mythical nature of this and why they sort of it lends itself to telling this story is that they weren't the really experienced guys, even in like the preceding, you know, just a couple of scenes ago, you've got more experienced political editors going, I have better guys on my bench to do better work than these guys can do. And part of, you know, Jack Warden fighting for them is no, these guys are hungry. They're young. It's actually better for the nature of the story as we currently understand it for them to be out of the established order of and structure and out of the established contacts because they're just going to be regurgitating the story or getting it squashed down to where everyone else is because if legitimately if other political reporters around the country and around the around that city at that time had had a lead on something they would have already taken it right so you've you've really only got the new york times early on competing with them and then it starts to swell and obviously you know once once they start to do their big reporting then every paper's on it and it's a, it's a different thing um but yeah that, it's that you know, who the hell is Woodward and Bernstein is, is everything about this and these guys. And like, even though he's way more experienced, I think what maybe Bernstein, whether it's hubris or not, like for the story, it's much cooler to see this more experienced guy learn some different technique because he's been a blustery bulldog, tenacious, bouncing around the walls. I need this story and we're going to print. And if you don't tell me, I'm going to run something you don't like. And his the pièce de résistance of the movie is almost his entire scene with the bookkeeper. It's like the scene of the movie. Um, and and it's his ability in that scene to sort of step back and take a more Woodward approach, a very silent, slow approach because she will scare. Like he, he has to sort of coax this story out of her with lots of details, very sort of quiet. It's kind of almost antithetical to everything else that he does in the entire movie. And then even in the follow-up scene, he takes a backward step to Woodward's more, you know, Woodward then takes the sort of Bernstein role, if you like, and takes the more direct approach. Hey, you've told this to my partner and I'm going to tell you this, I'm going to tell you that, and just allows Bernstein to sit there and play chorus. Um, it's, yeah, it's 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 incredible. Um, and I think the only scene that stayed from that whole script, we've already spoken about at length, is the data scene. Um, but I think that adds a little bit of flavor. That's a nice little bit of flavor into this movie. It is. Well, and it's, it's, you know, the, the sort of push pull between sort of traditional conventional entertainment value and sort of realism reality. Um, is, there's, there's a lot of tension, I think, between those two urges in the movie. And, um, you know, Goldman was so anti Hollywood bullshit. He didn't want any of that in the script. And that's why he was frustrated that that was the one scene um, I, I was rereading the, the chapter of his memoir adventures in the screen trade. It was all about the sort of tortured production of this movie. And he, he finishes the chapter by saying, um, 
he borrows a Peter Sellers line and says, if I had to do it over again, I would have written every screenplay that I wrote, but I would not have gone anywhere near all the president's men. He says, every, everything I'm saying in this chapter is something that I have not been able to repress. Like I have repressed every other memory of this experience. Um, cause he was, he was just, you know, being sort of railroaded by, by everybody in his perception at every turn from, you know, his friend, Robert Redford to the, the people at the post to, um, the director whose name is either Pacula or Pacula. And I can, I never know which one. It is. Let's, let's say that it's Pacula. I've spoken Pacula, uh-huh. in, in an upcoming episode in the very bookkeeper scene for folks who haven't listened, uh, uh, who are just listening for the first time. Welcome to the show. Um, and for <laughs> folks who have listened for a long time, uh, in an upcoming minute, which is in the bookkeeper scene, I speak to John Borston. And so if you don't know John by name, um, he was not only a, a talented filmmaker and a screenwriter in his own right, and now sort of goes around and visits different, you know, emerging filmmakers and imparts some advice. Was actually Alan Pakula's assistant on All the President's Men, and so spent time on the set and time in this editing suite. And I listened acutely because I wasn't sure either whether it's Pakula or Pakula. And so I think if folks have started to hear me say Pakula more often than not, it's because that Mr. Borston says Pakula. All right. You know what? I'll, I'll drop the, the veil of, of professionalism from all this for just a second and say, you know, Blake, it is it is so cool, man, that like I know you and I happen to know that, that so much of this project came from you saying to a friend at one point a few years ago, I just want to talk about heat all the time. <laughs> and you made that happen. And like, look at these conversations you're having, man. How cool is that? Like, come on. It is you know, there is nothing as, as a fan of you and a fan of your work. That just really warms my heart. There is nothing cooler. There is not like honest, honestly, Ethan, you, and you probably know better cause we've spoken off air about it in, in different ways is like, you know, I feel so enriched by the different voices that come onto this show and so surprised. And, and for example, you know, even just the great Justin Chang who writes for the time LA times, you know, I was talking to Justin, he's like, would you ever want to speak to Kenny Turin? And I'm like, like I, you know, I, I, people can't see my face. I'm like, if you insist, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, well, yeah, have you tried to contact? I'm like, well, I just, you know, it's hard to open the door to one of the greatest living film critics and be like, Hey, how are you? <laughs> like, um, it's, it's, a, it's a, it's a sort of a strange thing to do, but of course you just get so pleased. And you know, I, I feel honored because speaking to Mr. Turin, um, the maestro and just being flabbergasted at every turn in that conversation by his insight and his wisdom. And just like, you know, I think you and I, and, and I aspire to the sort of languid writing that you do. Um, and, and some of the great pieces and of all the folks that write on Brightwell Dark Room, but I was just flabbergasted that Kenny Turin can say like tweet length sentences that like are so loaded <laughs> with insight that it just knocks your limbs off. And you're like, I can't, I can't believe that that man could say such a powerful thing with so with such economy. But when I spoke to him, he was so kind about the experience that he said he knew John. And he's like, oh, you should talk to John. Would you, would you like to? And of course, the same thing happens. The same domino effect of like, yes, Kenny, I would love to speak to a guy who sat in the <laughs> editing suite of all the president's men. Like... Of course, yeah. of course. Um, and so, yeah, I look, I relish it. I, re- I and you know, speaking of going long, um, you know, uh, this is what true, true, great 
works of cinema in my mind demand like it's i feel like there's never enough to talk about so like when you're like have you talked about this have you talked about this i'm sure there's always another ethan angle there's a new angle on it because you know this is this might be your first or your second i'm sure there might be another one in you in you uh, in this in this film but it's like you know I, I love hearing people riff on it because I know with you, like you're, you're thinking long about the work A that you're doing and B you're presenting and it may not be the first time you've ever written about it, but you're going to tackle it again. Like I feel like you write, especially for the, I feel sorry for those folk who do it and the master um, whose birthday it is today, Mr. Roger Ebert used to do it. It's like he would come back to movies after many, many, many years and give more like, because it's like, there's just still so much more to say. I didn't get a chance to say it in my original review. Um, and well, you know, you're, you're watching every time you're watching a movie, you're a different person is watching it. You know, you're, you're bringing different stuff to the table and, and, you know, it's, it's a line that I have used in one of my own pieces is, you know, you're never going to fully understand a movie cause you're never going to fully understand yourself. Um, which is very corny and highfalutin. And I want to drag us back to the actual minute at hand cause we got so much meat left on this bone. Yes. Particularly I was, I, I was starting to say about William Goldman's experiences on this movie before we flew off into that lovely and emotional tangent. <laughs> um, he uh, was, was so against Hollywood bullshit and was, um, you know, wanted it to be as realistic as possible. And then to that point, wanted it to be funny. Yes. Um, and he talks in adventures in the screen trade that he had sat in, in post uh, budget meetings and, and the people at the post had said like, you know, um, we, you know, you got to come back to the next meeting. You know, you, you didn't hear any of the funny stuff. And he was, he was writing down actual jokes they were cracking and he put them in the screenplay and then his draft got rejected because, um, it was to William Goldman. They said in, in the time magazine piece, they say it, it, it reads like a joke book and it reads like Butch and Sundance take down the government. Um, and so he was, he was made to strip it all back out, which in some ways is kind of a sacrifice of realism, but I think does go to the idea of sometimes something has to not be necessarily true to feel true. Like it, it feels emotionally true that they are not cracking jokes all the time, but that makes the little Goldman zingers, which if you are a lover of William Goldman, you know how much he loves to just <laughs> slip in this like sort of jab that, you know, is just so perfectly mean and perfectly funny. And one of the few that, that really sort of sting that way in this, in this movie is in this minute. Is there anywhere you don't smoke? <laughs> yes. And, and the one in the, Which, and the one in the preceding minute is send it off to the San Francisco Chronicle. Like, I just like, <laughs> just like that may have been a verbatim Bradley line, but it is mean and it's funny. And it's, I think the fact that it is a little bit mean makes it funnier for longer. <laughs> it's like, that's it's just, right, well, what it is. I mean, if, if the movie had been good time, last the whole time, it would not be as effective when there are those, you're, you're cutting a lot of tension. Yes. When Woodward says, is there anywhere you don't smoke? Not to mention sort of, it is even these little like three lines that they have in this elevator scene. It's, it's a, it's a struggle for dominance. It's a power dynamic thing. It's once again, Bernstein is saying, you know, you fucked up kid, which is their first encounter. Their first meeting is, hi, I'm Bernstein. You fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm fixing your copy. And, and it's once again, it's like, 
you know, the, the, the big human golden retriever came in there with his golden retriever energy and he screwed it up. And the only way that the golden retriever can get it back is to point out that the other guy's being gross. <laughs> oh, but it does make me want to smoke all the time, Ethan, this movie. It does. It, it, well, see, I mean, I'm just like, I just want to smoke. I want to, I'm just saying it out loud because my wife won't let me. Um, <laughs> well, it's, it's right in the point in the movie where I was thinking, God, that guy smokes a lot. <laughs> and, and there's a funnier, there's a funnier one later and it's just a great, it's like, it's, it feels like a traditional movie sight gag, which is Bernstein played by Hoffman. He ashes on someone's couch and Woodward like looks at him and wipes the ash off the couch. Like, come on, like, come on, man. Like at least ash on the floor or something like try and put this elsewhere. Um, it's, it, it, it's terrific. But then we, we get out of this elevator. Like this is only part of the scene, you know, they, right, yeah. and we get, you know, sort of the last 20 seconds of the scene is like coming up and it's funny. It's funny when they walk up and he calls her Eddie, it's like, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie. I just love, I love that. And she sort of turns around and there's another Goldman zinger, like that's waiting to come out of Carl Bernstein's mouth here, which is great where she's like, you know, did you get out of it? Oh, I got out of it. And he goes, well, you look better. Like that's just, <laughs> you know, that's in the next minute. So yeah, I, I this one thing I want to, um, it's so funny how things play in a theater differently, but like, that's one thing I found with heat. And one thing I definitely found with all the president's men seeing it last year on the big screen is it was funny. Like people in the audience were laughing a lot. Like there were a lot of great lines and a lot of silly things and a lot of, you know, Jack Warden, you know, these, this guy's so dumb. He's so stupid. He doesn't know this. I'm glad he didn't tell it to Bradley. Um, people were really sort of laughing along. And I think that part of this great tension and silence and paranoia is like the relief. That's, I think Goldman's like plays you like a fiddle. That's a true master screenwriter. It's like, there's so much tension. There is so much earnestness. Sometimes we need to release the pressure valve, whether it's, you know, outbursts or funny or something. It's like, there has to be a difference in tone that pops up. And I think this movie and this minute does it great. Cause it's like despondency and nothingness. And then like, God, is there any way you don't smoke? Well, and it's it's great. It occurs to me that that the movie is made so contemporaneously to its setting because if you made it today, there would be so many more opportunities for the easy, like you know, the the sort of classic hacky, like, all right, we're going to fax this over to Buffalo. It's going to take only thirty minutes, and then the audience laughs because they didn't know then that that was slow. And so the any jokes I, I like want, that in here are earned. I want after you've written this terrific Paul Thomas Anderson tome, I, I I want you to like like pitch a terrible version of like a this kind of script with all those bad jokes to some company. <laughs> I just want to. I, I I definitely I definitely want to read the script. I definitely want to read the script. The, you know, you, you do the like not another teen movie version yes. of, you know, the, the parody of period movies. That's, I mean, I guess that's basically what walk hard is, is just <laughs> making fun of how corny the sort of the, the way that we treat history is, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's jokes like that in the post where it's, you know, there's the whole set piece of they're they're trying to, um, you know, do the, the quarters into the phone. Um, and I'm, I'm realizing now that, that Liz Hannah is, is a friend of the show. I'm not meaning to degrade. <laughs> It's just, it's, it is sort of inevitable as, as we, um, you know, look back at history, we, it, it is very hard not to sort of put a sort of knowing gloss on it. And, and what is 
so cool about this movie is that it is impossible. And, you know, it makes it work as a work of history in and of itself. It's just this, like, how do we look at the, how do we look at the world around us and make sense of it as narrative? Um, which, you know, as of this recording, I think yesterday, the day before, they dropped the images of uh, the, the Showtime uh, Comey Trump movie that their miniseries that will be coming soon. Yes. And it's like, it, it just looks like they are trying to, you know, judge it up with all this sort of like pomp and circumstance and significance. And, and this movie refuses to do that. It would have been very easy to cast someone as Nixon and, and bring in some sort of doom and gloom and, and it would be so much worse for it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's that's the continual thing I'll be baffled with. And I know people might get sick of me saying this, but I just, the choices that this movie makes with the, I don't know, with the carrot dangling of its proximity to the events. So people wanting to see, perhaps if you're going to see an all the president's men, the inference is that you're maybe going to see a Nixon. You're going to, you know, especially the first edition of the book has Nixon on the cover. Like, you know, if, if you're going to see this movie, there's a potential that you're going to get some further insights into, you know, the reporting. Maybe Nixon, maybe you're familiar with the book. Maybe, maybe you're not. It was a bestseller after all. Everyone was consuming absolutely everything around Watergate. I just am shocked that it's almost like why the social network continues to be really sort of inspired hey, in a yeah. way is yeah. they're making something that has such recent history and they're seeming to be able to have the cognitive distance to make the choices that don't, take it that one step too far or there might be one or two elements where you're like this is questionable or one or two scenes but so much of the resonance and the way that it's delivered it, make it rewatchable make it reconsumable and make it none of it on the nose like it feels like you know you never would have thought this like five even five years ago but like you go oh the social network's kind of restrained huh like it's kind of yeah. you know, it's like like they could have gone cambridge analytica on us back then and we would have gone, no. And, you know, you would have saw how forthright it was. But that's what I think about this movie is like, I, you don't, the concept of like that movie of the week, lifetime movie, they are the traditional people who occupy this space of making something that is immediate and it ends up being melodramatic nonsense. And this movie made like in conjunction with the production of the actual book seems to escape all of that. And I know that it might be torture for Paul Goldman, but it's like whatever whatever alchemy that you had and that tension to create that this this thing that kind of was all things but kind of also had a really great singular focus, I, I just, I'm flabbergasted by it. And in every new minute I am because it's like you get the artistry, you get these beautiful symbolic shots where you start to question fundamentals of and foundation of cinematic understanding. Like what is darkness? What is shadow? What is it saying to us about these people? What is an elevator? You know, you're standing still, but you're still going up or down. And if you're going down, what does that mean versus up? Um, and how long are you in there? And what does that mean? And, and then in the same moment, you come back to this brightly lit newsroom and you've got this factual encounter of like making a relationship happen. And it's just, I don't know. It's, it's that, that's why I'm talking. That's why now, you and I are talking, you know, 60 second minute of this movie of 138. And I'm still getting more and more excited about everything that's to come. Well, and it, you know, you, you bring up the social network and I think it is, it is by no means incidental 
that these two great examples of making sense of history and kind of having forethought like that come from these these two screenwriters who are, you know, I, I would say two of the best, if not the two great to my mind, mm. uh, screenwriters. You know, Aaron Sorkin, you know, he gets a bad rap because, you know, he's ridiculous and melodramatic a lot of the time. <laughs> Um, and, and wrong a lot of the time, if you look at some of the newsroom, just the, the sort of, when he is good, he is very, very good. And when he is bad, he is horrid to quote the poem. But, um, it's, there, there is so much more to being a brilliant screenwriter than just, than just a good line, yes. you know, because, you know, Goldman and, and Sorkin, they can, they can craft a, a great line, obviously, you know, 10 of them before breakfast, but the ability to look at the mess of the world around you and say, okay, this is where it starts. This is where it ends. These are, you've got to put brackets on history yeah, and put brackets, not even history. You got to put brackets on the reality around you that you know will stand the test of time. You've got to know both kind of what makes sense in terms of structure and then where that structure is not going to serve you well, which is what Goldman does so well. And it's, it's, the, the, the stuff that has been haunting me most in the last 24 hours of this Time Magazine piece are the spots where the writer just takes for granted that this movie is, at the end of the day, not great. Have you read this piece? No, I haven't. I haven't yet. I'm going to find it after <sighs> our call. I haven't read it. It, it, it is very, it, it is of significant length. I think, like, you know, you hit the next page button on your browser, like, nine times, however many words that is, to read this whole article. And it's fascinating. And then it gets to the end. And, you know, I've got a couple of quotes here um, where the writer just says, um, you know, he's acknowledging that Goldman um, basically issues um, traditional dramatic kind of fireworks. He consciously, whenever possible, denies the audience sort of catharsis as we think of it traditionally. And, and so often, I think the great movies, you know, capital T, the capital G, great movies, capital <laughs> M as well, um, are kind of a little bit maligned on initial release because it is very easy to look at it and go, well, that's not what I was expecting. That's not what I thought this movie was going to be. That movie didn't hit. It happens to all of us. I mean, some of my favorite movies, the, like the ultimate example I always go back to is, is Punch Drunk Love. Um, one of my very favorite movies, obviously. I'm obsessed with the filmmaker to the point that I'm devoting the next year of my life to it. I saw that movie and I hated it. I saw Shirley at Sundance. This movie just came out. Um, and I gave it a pretty iffy review in Bright Wall Dark Room. And I even, I, I have the privilege in Bright Wall Dark Room of being able to wrestle with that feeling where I'm like, this is obviously great, but like, I don't understand what I'm feeling. I don't know why I'm feeling it. And I can't really dig in on that yet. So I'm just going to say, eh, for now. And now I'm, it's, it's just a few months after the Sundance premiere and I'm so embarrassed by that review. Because now I look at the movie again and I say, how can I not recognize that every place it is deviating from what I expected, it's doing it because it's, it's playing me like a fiddle and I'm the one who sort of wasn't able to meet the movie where, it, where it's at. So these, these <laughs> quotes from this Time Magazine piece. Uh, the failure to explore the relationship between Woodward and Bernstein with more fully dramatized incidents, good sharp verbal exchanges is a major flaw. Giving the picture a certain coldness at its center. It's like, yeah, there's, there's a certain coldness at the center of this picture. Correct. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry that 
it is a major flaw. I mean, it's, it's not even a review of the movie. It's like they're doing a production piece. And then right at the end, he's like, and by the way, this movie is not that great. <laughs> let me, let me give you this, this whole chunk because it just, I, I have been really lingering on it for a day now. Um, so the writer is you know, Hoffman recently went to see the film version of James Whitmore's one man show. Give him hell, Harry, which I, I have never heard of this no. one man show or its film version. Probably for good reason. This writer is negatively comparing all of the president's men to give him hell Harry and saying, if only this movie was more like whatever this other thing is. So Hoffman reports the audience cheered when Harry Truman stepped right up and called Richard Nixon a lying son of a bitch. And then Hoffman argued on the set that all the president's men could have used one such uncool cathartic moment, a moment when all the emotion it so carefully suppresses is allowed to burst through. Yet that moment's absence should not mar what must be a triumphant moment for Redford as a producer. It's like, <laughs> look, we all know all the president's men is no give him hell, Harry, but we you got to at least <laughs> say Robert Redford did a good job as a producer. <laughs> and it, it is, it's just this like, how much worse would this movie be if there was one scene where they dropped the sort of carefully cultivated energy and gave you uh, make the audience cheer moment. I mean, the the ending of the movie, spoiler alert to somebody who's watching this minute by minute as they listen to the podcast. <laughs> and if there it, are any of you is, out there, please email me because you're insane. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> it, have, have them on to like predict what's going to happen. But I'll spoil it for them. It is, it is thrilling the way this movie ends. Like you're, at least for me, like my heart is racing as I see, oh my God, they're making the choice to deny us catharsis. This is incredible. I am experiencing catharsis as a viewer because I am being denied catharsis. How incredible is, is the way that they are suppressing this. And that's, that's not going to work for everybody. I watch, you know, enough movies that I now get the greatest charge when I am denied the opportunity to have a charge like that. Um, but just, you know, <laughs> it, it, it does just go back to, I think the folly for some of us who are not as great as, as Ken Turin or, or Manolo or, a lot of the, the amazing guests you've had on here is, is the ability to see something as brilliant as this or as Shirley and then turn <laughs> to, you got to turn it in like 24 hours later. And so you're like, I don't know what's going on here. So I'm just going to be safe and say, I don't think I liked it. And you know, history will, will judge you harshly for, uh, for misunderstanding a masterpiece I, to the point of saying it's, it's no give him hell Harry, which I'm going to look up right now. <laughs> Hopefully it's probably on YouTube. Um, I was just going to yep. say it's, uh, I've had a couple of guests bring it up, but a, a friend of mine, Cam brought up with me who has been a guest on the show, uh, just said he can't get over Roger, Roger Ebert's three and a half star review of this movie. He just can't get over it. He's like, Rog, it's the worst. And also then when you read Roger Ebert's, four-star review of Zodiac, he says that it's all the president's men for like with serial killers. Like that's basically his reference. So then it's this agonizing moment of like later on, he reflected, he watched it again. He came back to it. He, he, it got that extra star, whatever that, whatever that blockage was in his mind that it was going to be, it's that, but yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I can't, I can't fathom sometimes having to file things quickly anymore. Cause I go back and I read stuff that I file quickly and I'm like, I wasn't, I didn't even let that ruminate. It's like taking the wine bottle off and letting it air just for a second. Yeah. You know, just let it air for just like five minutes and this is going to be much better. It's, but you know, we get, this is, this is why there's shows like this. Cause then we get, you know, 40, nearly 50 years later um, to go back and reflect on it and to, <laughs> and just, 
and to just go, give him hell, Harry stunk. Okay, this this is not the give him hell, Harry minute. <laughs> I, I will. You should. Do <laughs> I will say. Ebert was on the right side of history. He gave Give Him Hell Harry only three stars. Oh. So he acknowledged it was half a Star Wars. <laughs> a movie from a movie from nineteen seventy five. Um that is that is based on a play, I guess. <laughs> President Harry S. Truman looks back on his life in a one in a one man performance. It's the equivalent of Secret Honor. Um and uh, a movie that I know has has come up on the show before, the yes. the Richard Nixon one man yes. show. God, to look at those two movies back to back, Give Him Hell Harry and Secret Honor, those those I suspect are very different viewing experiences. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my God. Well, I think, I think we've been exhaustive. Yes. I think, I think for a minute of movie that is two guys in the dark saying about three or four lines and then going to, they're about to hassle the woman. I think we've <laughs> they're about, probably just they're, about, they're about to hassle poor K Eddie here. Yeah. I'll, I'm going to say one more thing, which is, something I almost didn't say because it is so horrifically sort of highfalutin, but watching this movie, it, it brought me back particularly seeing the, the very sort of inky darkness. Um, I am, I am blanking on which sort of brilliant film mind of the mid 20th century said this. And so your listeners can either go look it up or we'll be screaming. Who is this idiot who claims to know things? Um, but as, as we think about sort of film versus digital, it is, it is something that has, uh, sort of vexed me. Um, you know, I, I started really getting into film as digital, uh, photography, you know, sort of overcame that sort of turn of the millennium hump and, and became virtually indistinguishable from, from film but there is just that ineffable, like, but something feels different. Um, you know, and it's very hard to describe. And so one of my great quests is to kind of like find the line that, uh, will kind of sum it up. Why is it that film just feels different? And this is, this is a fairly ridiculous melodramatic thing, but I have just, loved it since I, since I ran across it a couple of months ago and, and have hung on to it. And it came to my mind in this scene as the sort of the power of the darkness and the light and, you know, Redford's shirt and his hair against the sort of black, black darkness and the shadows on his face is, is whoever it is. Um, maybe it's, it's Andre B A Z I N. I will not even pretend that I know how to pronounce that. Bazan. <laughs> Andre Bazan. It may have been him who said um, that that film is, to a certain extent, akin to the Shroud of Turin. Yes, it is. It is a physical object that has been impressed with a an image, and that there is is just an inherent sort of grace that is lent by that. That you can't you can't see that and not feel a certain sense of awe. And it is like what what a an unbelievably melodramatic thing to say. But for those of us for those of us who are prone to sit here for now close to an hour and a half talking about one minute of a movie from decades ago. <laughs> it it called that to mind for me. It's it's just this feeling of like that darkness on that screen is powerful to me because it has actually been pressed onto a piece of celluloid that light was then run through. And so, you know, for all of the, the joys that, that 
watching this movie gave me one of them um is is just being able to luxuriate in in the photography which is just so incredible in such a low-key way i watched this movie with my wife um we we paused it because she's she's very much not a movie person um (laughs) you know she 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 likes a, a movie um as much as as much as the next person but sort of watches them the way that a lot of casual viewers do which is every so often it's nice to watch a movie not like me where it's like let's talk about one minute of this movie for an hour. <laughs> and so I paused it to point out the split diopters and it's just these, these little moments that are so sort of, they feel seamless as you watch them. But then as, as you're seeing it, it's just, it's just craft all over the screen, every single second, every single frame. And so, you know, thank you. Thank you for doing this project. Thank you for having me on because it, it brought me, you know, that, that feeling that we as, as film lovers, chase which is the sort of the, the grace of seeing images burned on celluloid about as good as anybody ever did it <laughs> that was my incredible friend ethan warren bright wall dark room is the place you can find him every month writing languidly and luxuriating and pontificating on films and he's pretty much one of the best doing it i am desperate to get my hands on his eventual tome on the cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, as you would expect. This is One Heat Minute Productions, home of Increment Vice, hosted by Travis Woods. There's only one other man on the planet that I'd want to see do that, and he's already doing it. Every single week in this feed, if you are not listening, you must, and you can also read Travis's wonderful stuff at Brightwall Darkroom as well. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of All the President's Minutes. I really appreciate you guys listening. We hope that you are enjoying all of the shows on One Heat Minute Productions. This show, of course, All the President's Minutes, which is happening about four times a week, increment vice once a week, barreling towards its finish line, and shows that have finished one heat minute, of course, our flagship show, The Last 12 Minutes of the Mohicans, and now the recently covered Josie and the Podcats, getting a little bit of coverage in Australian media, um, and uh, something I'm particularly proud of, hosted by the awesome Maria Lewis, my bestie, uh, and, uh, and 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 obviously produced by my good self. Guys, if you do love any of the shows on the One Heat Minute Productions feed, please share them. Um, right now, everyone's doing it a little bit tough with money. Everyone's doing it a little bit tough during COVID. Everyone's doing it tough in every single way. And uh, we want to we, we want to continue making great stuff for you. We want to continue to be um, pr- having the time to produce great content and new types of content with upcoming shows like Zodiac Chronicle. So if you can, please share the show. If you do have a few bucks, there's donation links in the descriptions. And there's also links on oneheatminute.com for our Patreon on if you guys want to get amongst it that would be hugely appreciated but right now understandably if the most you do is share this show that's more than enough i've been blake howard at one blake minute on twitter if you want to find me there mail at oneheatminute.com if you guys want to reach out via email we love an email love reading them out on the show and atpm pod on twitter for this show all the president's minutes we'll catch you on another episode of all the president's minutes very soon